Well, welcome everyone to the Sexual Nine podcast. And I am so excited to have all of you here with us. And uh, to begin, we'll have you introduce yourself, just your name and where you're from. Uh, we're going through all of this right now over this season because we want to distinguish or help people to see the difference between uh, not just the types, but how it happens even within the type as you look at the instinct and how it plays itself out. So I'm excited that you're joining us for this. And uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you, your name, where you're from, and then we'll jump right in. Uh, my name is Seth, uh, and I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I've been here for about 10 years and studying the Enneagram pretty intensely for about five. Cool. Thank you. I'm Donna. I live outside of Philadelphia. I've lived here about almost five years. Before that, I was a lifelong Texan. Um, so that explains the accent. I'm a practicing professional counselor and have been studying the Enneagram for 12 years, give or take a little. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm John. I'm from Oxford in the UK. Well, I'm actually from Portsmouth. I'm living in Oxford at the moment. I've been reading about Enneagram and personality type for a few years, studying at the moment psychology and uh, and working as a piano tuner. So hopefully trying to get into psychology and counseling in the end, uh, but playing pianos and tuning them at the moment. I'm Catherine. I'm in San Antonio, Texas. I'm a native Texan like you, Donna. And I am a retired educator and education researcher. And what I do now is I um, lead online movement slash dance experiences. And I do a little bit of Enneagram coaching. And I'm just starting to learn to do that. And I've been working with Enneagram for about 15 years for myself. And I absolutely love it. Wow. Wonderful. Well, this is going to be good. And what I love about this panel is how the sexual energy and what happens when it meets up with the uh, features of the type. And so the first one we'll look at is the core need, uh, the need for comfort, the need for peace, the need for connection, and how that interacts with, uh, well, let's take the first sort of category under the sexual instinct, which is risk. So talk to me about how Comfort, <laughs> the need for comfort interacts with also the desire to kind of push the envelope a little bit, to take a, you know, break some habits, to take some risks in life. So talk to me. So, so as I was thinking about risk, you know, it, it's not a word that I would pick out of a long list to describe myself. Um, peacemaker, absolutely. Uh, risk taker, not so much. But as I kind of paused and looked back on the last few years, I remember saying to my husband, we were both lifelong Texans and um, he was doing some job searching and got approached by somebody actually in Ohio. And he said, would we ever move out of the state? And we'd moved all over the state. It wasn't that we hadn't taken risk, but we had never thought about leaving, you know, altogether. And I said, let's go make a mistake. And I actually mm. threw Philadelphia out there because it was like a random city we had no connection with at all. I said, I don't know, look in Philadelphia. And that was kind of a prophetic moment because this is where we landed. But it was, it really felt more like intuition driven easing into a choice. It didn't feel like the kind of risk I would imagine a seven might take or a three might take where you feel, oh, wow, this guy is really out on the limb doing something crazy. So for me, risk seems like 
something I see more in retrospect, but at the time it just feels like a natural part of my flow as a peacemaker with that intuition and the comforts of peace at that. Like, I think this would be a good fit for our life, for our family. I think that that's probably consistent with those who have the sexual instinct as your dominant instinct is you're not going to necessarily feel that what you're doing is risky. So I think that that's uh, an interesting thing to say because compared to maybe other types, it looks risky. But to those who are acting in a particular way that seems risky, I think the level of comfort we have, those of us who have the sexual instinct, with taking steps forward is much more there, I guess, than for those who who, who may not. But I like how, uh, Donna, you described the peace still being, this peacemaker still being involved in the process of taking risk. So yeah, other thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I'll chime in and say that when I think of um, risk, I like to think of it within the context of wholeness. So two things that'll come up here for me, I think. Risking for the sake of this may or may not be comfortable for other people, but I'm what I'm after is integration. You know what I'm what I'm after is trying to get all the other parts in here, and that might feel uncomfortable, but that's still it's what actual peace looks like. You know, so I might, in a sense, be pushing towards that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Whereas, like, I feel like that's more of a thing as I've gotten older in, in adulthood. But previously, you know, I, I would say I've always been pretty fine with risk, not even knowing that it w- would be risky to somebody else, but for the sake of my closest friends would be, you would peace, you would feel comfortable if I did this thing that you're looking for. Like you're challenging me to do this and I want you to feel at peace. And so I'm going to do it anyway. And I don't know if this is with the other, the, the tertiary and the, and the secondary uh, instincts being more in conflict or indifferent, but self-pres has always been way out of the picture as well. So you put those two things together and I'm, I've always been just like, I'll just do whatever, you know, I'm up for it, you know? <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. When I was thinking about risk, talking about kind of moving out of your home state, that's kind of like a risk that to people outside you might seem completely illogical and like it comes from nowhere. And I feel like for me anyway, the risks that I take, they are, completely like logically sound and consistent with my intuition and everything like that. But from the outside, I feel like they often look more chaotic, but they always kind of pay off in the end because you're, if you trust your gut, you sort of come out where you need to be in the end. Mm. So I want to piggyback on what John was just saying about, so I have a, uh, been teaching dance for a long time. And when I first started, um, I was working with a form that was choreographed and we had routines that we got from the trademark organization. And we were supposed to follow those. And I wanted to use my own music and I wanted to use my own choreography and I wanted to do it my way. And I guess that was kind of risky because there was a culture around doing it the way it was supposed to be done. Hmm. And I... I knew that some of the other teachers didn't approve of what I was doing. And I was so determined to go ahead and do it anyway, that to keep myself and them in a comfort zone, I just started teaching in a different town. Mm. And it worked out great because I was happy and, you know, I wasn't plaguing them anymore with my creativity. (laughs) (laughs) I got to do what I wanted (laughs) and have fun with it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. You had some more thoughts on that, Seth? Yeah, I was just going to say one of the ways that I've been able to kind of nail down the being dominant in the sexual instinct is is sort of the this contradiction that I would say is like I want I'm wanting to charm, but I'm also feeling the thing of it. I'm looking for attention seeking as well, mm-hmm. and it's I you know I don't want to be I don't want to be seen too much. I don't want all the attention. But at the same time, I want connection here, you know, and so yeah. I'm willing to risk what it takes to get connection, even though yeah. it might feel uncomfortable or look like I'm uh, getting attention from people. You know, I'm willing to risk that. Yeah, being seen in, in a poor light or whatever. You know. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this is what's interesting about how the instinct is sometimes intersect. It you know even sometimes clash with the type, and sometimes there's a little bit of that happening, and I. I heard that in what you were saying, Catherine, as well, in terms of like, I want to have my own creativity. I want to have my own music in here. And yet, you know, I don't want to create this problem. And so how do I bring both of those things together? So that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, this helps us to also move into, I want to move into the uh, another uh, aspect of that. And you had started us down that. Uh, so we'll, bring, we'll continue on that, Seth, is the broadcasting piece. There is a risk that it, I mean, and these are all interconnected as well, right? Because there's a risk in broadcasting as well. So, but the broadcasting is this other category, you know, kind of putting yourself out there where that would tend to go against the sort of nine, you know, stereotypically being one that pulls back, you know, the mm-hmm. one that kind of wants to merge, not necessarily stand out and create or risk creating a problem. So, talk to me about how broadcasting interacts with you and what do you do with it? Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. I think for me, broadcasting is like the price that you pay for the merging. You want the merging and the price that you have to pay is kind of standing out. And that goes like, in a way, it's kind of against my instinct, but in another way, it's kind of what I really want to do. I want to stand out, but I don't want to be, I don't know, the point of focus for everyone. It's just sort of like for that one person, you want to kind of stand out to them. And then that comes into the whole fusion thing. You can only get that after you've broadcasted, you know, even though it can feel like uncomfortable and unnatural at times, you know that it's kind of paying into something bigger in the end. It sounds like you're sometimes also moderating that. Like there's a measure at which it's like, I'm not going to go too far in the broadcasting. Yeah, yeah, yet, totally. Okay. This is so interesting. My, my experience is very similar to this, and it comes back around to the uh, the dance. Currently, I'm leading experiences over Zoom, and they're a freeform dance now. I have completely done away with the choreography. You know, it's just going to be like whatever the body wants to do. So, Zoom is such a perfect way to showcase. Mm. <laughs> You know, it's like, oh, here I am in this window and everybody can (laughs) see me. (laughs) And, um, you know, that lights me up. The broadcast aspect just really comes online there and it's it's a lot of fun. And at the same time, I have this uh, this voice, this point nine voice that's saying, well, tamp it down. It's uh, not going to be a good thing if I'm too big or too flashy or too conspicuous or take up too much space. Um, Mm. and you know, if I move gracefully or if I move energetically, or if I move some way that another person does not have access to, then that person might feel bad. So I I wouldn't want that. So I do a lot of tamping down. It's, it's kind of interesting. This is Uh, fascinating. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
I'm, I'm so eager to dive into that, but I want to hear from Seth and Donna. Is, yeah. uh, talk to me about that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I really resonate, especially with how you worded that. You know, that the specific sort of inner critic for the nine, you're good or okay if if others are okay as well. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't know this about nines. It's not only about my piece. If you don't feel okay and that's my fault, Oof. that's a huge deal. Yeah. That's a huge deal. Yeah. And that can that can happen if I'm trying to get your attention and it didn't work, right? I'm trying to build, get something going here. And I just screwed it up. And now, oh no, that's the biggest thing in the world because this is exactly what I was trying to do here. And I failed. So it's yeah. for me, it's probably more so with people that I've built along relationship with people that I feel trusted with. So I can say something intense or use intense language to attract my wife's attention and really like affect her and sort of say, it's a way of indirectly saying, see me. Mm. Mm. But it's also a way to get some charge in the air because it's how I yeah. know we're, we're going here. You know? Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. this is so fascinating because the sexual instinct will go across all types and we'll all say, yes, I know what you're talking about when you talk about the charge, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yes. the way you're doing it as a nine, that's really fascinating to me because that is different. And there are some different ways that you're doing it. And for you to feel like if I created a problem in my attempt to have this connection, then I feel the weight of that because it's not just my piece, it's your piece as well. Like that makes a lot of sense. And mm-hmm. that, yeah, that's true for, I think all nines in general is just like, I don't want to feel like I'm the cause of any, any discomfort or problem or conflict in anybody's life. And yeah. yet the sexual energy is pushing you out to make this connection. Yeah. Yeah. So is the energy of the broadcasting attraction is it more about a drawing than a chasing? Like it might be for another sexual of a different type? Yeah, yeah. definitely. What about you, Seth? How would you, would you say it's more drawing than, or? I would just remember growing up, like never really having any worry about if I want to get somebody's attention, I've got all the confidence in the world. If I want to get somebody's attention, I will do it in a secret nine way, but I've, I will get it. I will mm. get what I'm after. Yeah, yeah but, it, but it is... Um, to go back with to what I said about my wife, sometimes I can drop some bomb just to get an affect out of her. And that feels like that definitely happens for me too as a nine, but without trying to be too affected. It's a running joke around my house that, oh, Seth's happy. Really <laughs> sad. Seth's, you know, all these things that I'm just even killed, right? Um, but I, I find myself sort of vacillating between this. It sounds kind of foreish, but pushing and pulling back my attention and energy to create interest mm-hmm. and preoccupation, if that makes sense. Like here it is. Are you gonna? Are you, Are you gonna, gonna receive it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, mm. yeah. That's that's yeah. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I think for me, so I'm a therapist, and I have a really high retention rate. You know, not everybody sticks with their therapist. Or you do a few sessions, you get what you need, you move on. I'm constantly surprised that people keep coming back, which I think is that tension between being the peacemaker nine, fly under the radar. I'm really good at being invisible, but when I'm on, when I'm in flow, I'm really working in a place where I just feel bliss and I connect with my clients and it surprises the nine part of me, I guess. But I, I'm thinking that it is this broadcasting attraction thing of, yeah, I had this energy and this charge. And when I can meet a client in that sacred space of the therapy room and they are really feeling heard and seen and listened to and I'm showing on my full presence 
as a listener and when seeing them and they feel validated by that, there's a little bit of the peacemaker that's like, well, who am I to be validating this person? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I literally Mm -hmm. met them two weeks ago, but I, I step into this important role in their life, which, you know, you could say that's projection or, you know, a need that they had that they didn't get from parents, whatnot. But I, it feels like what I was designed for, you know, Mm. it really, truly feels like my calling bringing that energy and, and it's small example of that would be, you know, leading them in a meditation where I'm having them sit in silence, which can make people very uncomfortable. And the peacemaker me is like, Ooh, they're kind of fidgeting. You might cut it off sooner. Don't put them through that. Right. But I use a stopwatch to hold myself accountable. No, I said 10 minutes, we're going to set in silence for 10 minutes or maybe two, depending on the client, but I can put aside my own discomfort knowing it's for their deeper benefit. And there's just like a really deep grounding that happens there between the client and myself where, you know, they leave session. They're like, wow, I just feel totally different than when I walked in the store mm-hmm. and they keep coming back for more, more sessions, which is, I would say affirming, but it's also very humbling. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it just, it definitely feels like something bigger than me and bigger than the client as well. Mm-hmm. It kind of makes me think of, um, Donna, you'll probably know the psychologist Carl Rogers. So I read his book a little while ago and his approach to therapy really resonated really deeply with me because it was, it was all about, like you were saying, kind of validating the other person, seeing them (laughs) as an independent person. And uh, so when I read that, when I read Carl Rogers, it really, it spoke to something deep in me that I'd felt, felt since like childhood, really that idea of the best way to get along with somebody was to accept them hundred percent as they are and not to be kind of trying to force anything on them or making them feel like weird, you know, like that feeling of when somebody looks at somebody else and says, you're weird. Mm. That just felt like the most wrong thing to do in the world to kind of Mm. put somebody in that position of outside of normal. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's beautiful. And that is something that I find with nines in general that you do make room for people. It's part of the the interesting thing about a nine that they don't feel like they can take up space and they take up too much space, but yet you create loads of space for other people to feel really welcomed. And then, you know, with the sexual energy, that adds to the sort of deepening of connection with people. And I'm hearing that there, which mm. is the fusion piece, um, yes. which we've already started to talk about. So if you wanted to say a little bit more about the fusion piece and that deep connection that, uh, you know, has that charge. I like that word set that you use the charge in the air. Mm. I've used sizzle, you know, whatever the, the word is, it's sort of like this vibrancy that happens mm-hmm. in that connection. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that from each of you. When I have my online uh, movement events, we always have a conversation afterwards where we talk about what we noticed or what we're noticing in the moment. And it's really beautiful. It's kind of risky for people to show up and, you know, dance in community anyway, just because of our culture. And we get to see each other. Part of the practice is witnessing one another. So that's edgy for people, too. So when we have our conversations afterwards, um, part of the role that I take on, which I've had to really kind of gear myself up to do, 
is to hold a, a sacred space, as Donna was saying. It's, um, it's really beautiful because people are, they have just finished this movement practice. They're open, they're expanded, they're kind of raw. Uh, a lot of emotions have moved through their bodies and now they're ready to speak about it. And so my job and my privilege and my, uh, my absolute pleasure is to hold space for that and to be the one who um, encourages them and helps them to feel safe Mm. And to let them know that whatever they bring is absolutely appropriate. Mm. Yeah. And I love doing that. And the way it usually works out for me because of, I guess, because of the sexual nine personality is that I do it in a way that's playful and we laugh a lot Mm. and people comment on, you know, that they love my playfulness. And it's not really an intention I have because I, I want people to know that I take them seriously and that they're deeply heard. And yet, oftentimes it just turns into humor and laughter and levity. And Mm. so that's... uh, I have to say, I have to respond to that. That's so good because I can hear in you the comfort coming in. Mm -hmm. You've allowed people to open up. You've created the space for them to be who they are. They've processed emotion at a deeper level, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's the desire and the gift. And this is not, this is why all the aspects, all the features of each type has both a low side and a high side. It is a gift, but it also has its sabotaging effect as well. And here, I hear you using it on the high side. Like, you know, you've opened up, you've shared deeply, and now let me bring some comfort. And comfort through levity, comfort through humor, Mm -hmm. um, a way to kind of bring people back to a place of being okay. Yes. Yeah. And while you're answering and thinking about fusion, there's this aspect of emotion. Maybe you can speak about this too, where other nines in nines tend to kind of bring the dial down on a lot of intensity so that there's, you know, kind of smooth and, you know, the waters of their lives are calm. It seems to me that the sexual energy allows for a little bit more of that disruption, allows for a little Mm -hmm. bit more of the emotion of other people without immediately trying to neutralize the intensity they're feeling outside of themselves, as well as that which is happening inside. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that in terms of also the deep connection you have with, with people, the fusion. Yeah, I think that's been like a big part of my growth has been being okay with people around me not being okay and not having to smooth everything immediately because that's not always what the situation needs, you know? to have everybody instantly placated. It's kind of like sometimes people just need to get all the thoughts that they're thinking, get all their emotions out, get it all feeling and being able to, to just roll with it as opposed to having to fix it has been like a massive kind of, mm-hmm. it's actually brought me more peace because it's like, I don't feel the pressure always to fix everything. You know, everything doesn't have to be perfect around me. It can just be, a bit messy for a bit, you know. Mm, I love that. For me, there's kind of really, there's two really big ways that I can go with this aspect of the instinct. The more obvious one that we usually hear about, right, with the with the sexual nine, this is kind of the double whammy, right? <laughs> of like the symbiotic sort of oneness. I lose myself in somebody else for a nine, right? Um, I forget myself. I forget what's important to me. And I actually maybe even take on what's important to somebody else without realizing it and confusing it for my own. Yeah. Which is really sad. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but I, I, I'm de- I've definitely found myself in personal experiences, like forgetting it's, it's safer to 
like just, you know, kind of go dead with bigger personalities or even, even I've found myself in the past with my, with my kids, I use them as shields. I have used them as shields. Like when there's a big personality that wants something and I make the excuse of like, my kids need to go right now. And I'm like, no, I need to go, but I'm putting Hmm. this on them. Uh, This is too much for me. Yeah. I don't know what you're trying to do. And I can't tell you that, but my kids need to go. No, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, sure. I think of also, have you guys read much of Oscar Chazo? He's got the Enneagram of Traps. He talks about the nine is this, it's called Seeker. Uh, and it's this way of like uh, seeking outside myself, all the different options uh, and not finding it inside. To me, it's this idea that if I'm not present inside I'm not going to really be able to take in any of the experiences that I'm... It's, it's more like I'm a gas than a solid as yeah. a nine. And so mm. there's there's no ground for what all that I'm seeking outside of myself to attach to, which mm. just perpetuates this issue or body types. And so if there's no embodied me here to be in control, it's actually like I'm losing control because I'm seeking everything to vicariously embody me for me. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so I'm sort of trying to like legitimize and substantiate my significance through the eyes of somebody else. Yeah. Like yeah. that's the merging thing. And for me, I'm losing myself because I need you to name the fact that I am significant too, but yeah. I can't do it on my own without you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. That is really... Uh, well said. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that's beautiful. Yeah. I can hear the pain in that and the loss in that. But it's also beautiful that you can express it and open up and share that with us. So I really treasure that. It's very, yeah. very helpful for me, excuse me, to understand what's going on with the... And there's another side of that too. I would love to hear from the other nines because this is only... I've only experienced this as I've gotten older. I'm 36 now and I've, I've got three kids and I've lived a lot of painful life of waking up too to the fact that I've fallen asleep to myself. But after I have... As a sexual nun, I feel like more often than anything, I prefer to be on my own now, actually. I don't really like merging with people. That's become too much for me. Mm. I get that that tendency for me. But the more that I've, I'm consuming, and it's not just people, the more that I'm consuming information that I am trying to you know, become one with or find a, an imitation, a faux wholeness or whatever, the more I do that, the more independence I need. And the more, when my family's all in the same room, I can't be there. Mm. (laughs) I'm curious if anybody has experienced that. Like the more I'm seeking external things to legitimate something I don't know inside of me, the more I'm hollowing myself out. Mm -hmm. Mm. And the more I need to feel autonomy somewhere else by myself. Isn't that something? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Is it because you really see the value of the pulling away because and because you realize now what that payoff is when you actually do go back and listen to your own voice i think it's that i think it is that now but i think at some point not all nines really enjoy merging because you wake up to the fact that i've lost myself again mm-hmm. i'll just say i i had some very painful experiences earlier in my life with being hijacked allowing myself to be hijacked with somebody else's very strong personality and kind of losing myself in that. And that came on the heels of some grief. And I think I was really vulnerable and open to that. And when I kind of woke up and came out of that, learned to set some really tough 
boundaries, which, you know, I visualize this little picket fence around my yard. It's not a big wall. There's a gate, but this is my space and you can't drive your monster pickup truck through my flower bed. Mm. Um, I can see you in your yard. You can come over here, but this is my space. It's mine. So I've learned to do kind of bigger things like, you know, take retreats by myself, mm. um, not to go hear some speaker that I think is going to save me. Cause I've had experiences of doing that and realizing, Oh, this person has nothing to say. I've got to actually tune into my own mm. small voice inside, but also smaller things of, I can't commit to that right now, but I will email you about it later instead of saying yes in the moment. Cause it's easier to say yes. Or, Hey, can I have some time to think about that? And I'm absolutely going to get back to you. I have a rule for myself. I don't commit to anything in the moment. It, it, you know, if somebody's asking me to be on a committee or something like that, even if I absolutely want to in the moment, I know that might be their agenda, not mine. Yeah. And I have to be by myself before I know my own agenda. Yeah. So I just have that rule. I don't say yes in the moment. Mm-hmm. I go home and I'll mm-hmm. email you. And I email because it's easier to say no via email than um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I've got to set the bar, you know, accessible for myself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, having that time to be alone. Yeah, you really have to know why you're saying no as well, because it can be really easy to turn that no into a yes if you're not 100% on it. I mean, so easy, like literally like that. I don't need much convincing. If someone's trying to convince me of something in the moment and I'm not 100% certain on it, I can now take that time, like you said, like to take that time and go and make the decision. But if I say yes or no in the moment, then I have no idea if I really want to do it. Like literally it's impossible for me to know if I Mm. actually want to do it in the moment. And this is where the sexual energy actually accentuates that. It doesn't help it. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) The the need to, the drive to like connect and fuse with Mm -hmm. other people. So um, this is where instead of counteracting it or tempering it a little bit, it seems to push that along even more so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I kind of tend to think it's the two different uh, sides of anger compliance or defiance yeah (laughs) yeah and i feel like that's the nine experience really right there it's just back and forth between those things wow yeah 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 it makes a lot of sense well you you know this has been so good to answer these you know the sort of the feature and how it shows up of the nine inside that instinct and through that instinct let's take a look at the one that is more neutral to you sometimes we call it the second one the one that uh doesn't really create much problem for you. You do it. Uh, which one is that for you and how do you use it? Well, my, uh, my neutral one is self-preservation. And I've always been a really enthusiastic nest builder and a healthy eater. And for a long time, I was in a very stressful relationship, a 20-year marriage with a sexual six who really didn't think much of my um wishy-washiness and my passive aggression and my stubbornness. And he let me know in no uncertain terms. And I developed a lot of physical ailments Mm. because I was ignoring myself and not taking care of my self-pres, even though it is my second neutral. So I got away from that relationship. I got to be by myself. I spent a lot of time by myself. I even moved to another country for a while to be by myself. It was (laughs) so great. Yeah. And um, I came into a much better relationship with um, my body. I started learning really how to use my body for expressing my emotions. 
and for creating wow. beauty and more pleasure. And I'm now in relationship with a self-preservation five, and he is helping me learn about boundaries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. It's such a good combo. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Mine is also self-preservation, my second one. And uh, it's definitely a massive part of my comfort and peace is having a nice space to live in at home, a nice space to relax in and not to be kind of shut in to somewhere that feels feels foreign or something like that. You know, it feels like if it's not kind of pleasing to the eye or the senses, like, you know, the smells of things and if that's not quite right, then that can, that's like, can, plays a massive part of my balance and peace and everything mm. like that. And it's only really, really kind of recently that I've realized how much a part of that, how much that plays into my peace, really. Mm. Um, but yeah, I love, I love doing all that. I love kind of taking care of myself a lot more now, knowing how much it affects me and taking care of the space that I live in and things like that. Yeah, that's great. It's interesting to me that you call it the neutral space, Joel, because self-pres is definitely my neglected um, back burner, third in line instinct, um, which shows up in all sorts of ways. The social, I'm not really sure, other than really being aware of, you know, keeping peace in the group, trying to meet everybody's needs, um, which is definitely that peacemaker energy as well. But I'm not really sure where I connect with that social instinct. Um, because the sexual instinct is so strong. And then mm-hmm. I can tell glaringly where the self-pres neglect shows up. But you're right. It feels like a very neutral space that that mm. social instinct falls into. Yeah. And a lot of sexual types will say that the social sphere becomes a place where they can do their sexual energy. So it's like that's the context. I look for groups and then I can find that connection with someone. Mm. And the way you just put that, Donna, it reminds me of the saying we use in the Enneagram a lot, where the attention goes, the energy follows. And it's like with the dominant instinct, it's the attention's kind of always going there. And with the repressed, it can feel like we're pulling away, we're pulling attention away from it. But it just, with the neutral, it's like it doesn't really draw attention. So I don't even necessarily notice it all that much because it's sort of just, it just, it's fine. And that's why I, I kind of like how you put that because it was kind of like, it, it just doesn't get attention drawn towards it. Right. It's just not on my radar. Right. Which is probably work to be done there. (laughs) You know, this has been a conflictual thing for me uh, because I have sort of prided myself in trying to take in all of the information in the world about the Enneagram. But there's different, you know, there's different takes on on this. I will risk for the sake of trying to connect to you guys <laughs> and promote myself here. <laughs> uh, we just had uh, Mari Sakura on our podcast called Fathoms, which is an Enneagram podcast. And he's got a very different take than anybody yeah. else. If yeah, you, very if different you listen than to us, him. Yeah. yeah, he's got like patterns of influence. And he would say that, well, if you lead with the sexual instinct, what is second is self-preservation or what he calls preserving, and third would be the navigating is what he calls it, or social instinct. Um, he says that's the order. You can't have uh, yeah, social yeah. second, you know? Um, and so this is, it's hard for me not to 
because I like taking in all the options, all the sides, right? It's hard for me not to use confirmation bias and, and make sense of even second or third. It's been really hard for me to do that. So I really don't know besides the fact that I can say observation uh, needs have always been a massive issue for me. Like when I first got married, I got into a lot of fights with my wife because I just didn't want to shower for a week. (laughs) (laughs) And obviously that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I can go through a day and just, uh, I forgot to eat again, you know? Hmm. So I do know that that's probably not my, my dominant instinct. It's either my indifferent instinct or the, or the, the secondary. Whereas I've had a lot of conflict in relation to the, the social instinct where I just, I can be so sexually oriented uh, that I miss the signs, that I overdo it. And now I'm in trouble on a social level. I get that. So I don't really know y'all, but I'm still trying to figure it out. (laughs) Yeah, I can speak for myself. I don't, uh, I'm not married to the order of how things work. Like, is it a one? Is it a two? The whole thing is really our relationship to the instinct and to what's happening. And so these are just sort of tools we use, you know, like, you know, which one is your dominant, which is, which is the one that, so you don't really pay attention to It doesn't create problems for you. And, um, but will the second one create problems like you, Seth, I would say, my second um, for me is social and had, and, and I have created problems in the social sphere because of the, the sort of drive of the sexual energy, ignoring like you, ignoring, not even noticing. It's not like I'm intentionally ignoring it, just not noticing social structures, not reading and interpreting the way um, social types would. And then it creates problems. So there's areas where I need to grow in that section as well, that, that instinct. So I think that that's um, more of how we're thinking about it. It's more of the relationship that you have with them. But there's one that sort of feels for a lot of us, like it drops way off. Like it's the one Mm -hmm. that we don't want to deal with. It's difficult. And yet there are aspects of that, even the third one, where you will have peace with it and it won't be too much of a problem with it. So it's just in terms of thinking how these instincts work and in percentages, which is why we've done our test the way we have is that you can have a lot of the dominant one and you can have a lot of the second one and you could even have a good amount of the third one. It's just that in percentages, it tends to drop off that way. So I I appreciate your your sort of honesty about where you're at. And like, you know, I'm still in that space too, where I look at certain aspects of the social instinct and like, yeah, that one, that one I don't do very well. The reading and interpreting has gotten me in trouble. You know, I've just sort of fused with somebody and like, oh, right, we're supposed to be running a meeting here. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, I violated the rules of this uh, uh, (laughs) social structure here in this meeting. I get that. Yeah. Yeah, I can totally relate. Um, Social has always been very, very difficult for me. Most of my young adult life, I just could not be in crowds, could not go to parties, didn't know how to be in a party. Um, When I was in school, thank God, I'm old enough to where when I was in um, elementary, middle and high school, group work was not a thing because I could not have done group work. <laughs> when I became a teacher, it started to be a thing, and it was really hard for me to ask my students to do group work, because I just, oh, no, it just didn't, <laughs> no, I can't even talk about it. But I did bring myself into knowing how to navigate a social situation, kind of in a sneaky way. I became a teacher, 
And I, that was my heart's desire. And first I taught little kids, you know, cause they're loving and it's easy and it's fun. And then I taught big kids and then I taught adults and, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of gave me a little bit of a challenge. I learned a lot. So I realized that out of my professional life, I was also needing some authentic social involvement in my life. And I recognized also that I was very uncomfortable in unstructured social situations. Hmm. However, hmm. I, I wanted this for myself. So, and I, I wanted intimacy to be present as part of the experience. This was hugely important. And besides, I wasn't interested if there was no intimacy. So I risked, this was started about 20 years ago. I risked going to some women's retreats and also some workshops with the teacher I really trusted deeply to hold the space in a way that felt safe for me. And those experiences helped me to relax and to just show up and be present and to enjoy the social aspect because I knew that it was going to be okay. And now I can lead those kinds of things myself. Mm. And it's easy and it's fun and I love doing it, but I really had to work into it. It was not an easy thing. It's satisfying mm. now, but it's been a, a hard climb. <laughs> mm. I love that. That's integration. Yeah. Yeah. You've just described what happens when we begin to integrate the instincts. Uh, yes. So yes. beautiful. Yeah. I'd love to hear from others of you as well. Like what is the instinct that you've uh, had some struggles with and how are you growing through it? Uh, yeah. My struggling one has definitely been social as well. I can remember being really young and uh, if the conversation was one-on-one, then it was no problem. I could get on really well. As soon as there's mm-hmm. two or more people, it was like, it's overload, you know, it's like trying to process mm-hmm. every individual and what each individual wanted from me. It was just too much. If it was one-on-one, it could be fine. But uh, so now I think growing past it has like tied into the other thing I said, it's just the realization of not having to make everybody all right. And what's more important is me being all right you know and so i find groups much easier to navigate now now i know it's more important for me to bring myself rather than for me to please everybody else yeah oh that's so good Mm. (laughs) i love that that's growth man that's really good i think for me you know trying to address the self-preservation yoga has been significant in that and i think it dovetails also with being a body type that forgets their body. Somebody recently described yoga to me as you put yourself in this uncomfortable position and then you get comfortable with being in that uncomfortable position. Mm. If there was ever homework for a peacemaker who just wants comfort, (laughs) it would probably be um, that kind of stress tolerance exercise. So when I can remember myself and actually do those kind of practices, there's so much integration that happens on the other side of that discomfort. as yeah. just having the faith to push through that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. That's great. That reminds me of that. There's a YouTube group there. I think they're called yes theory or something and their, their t-shirts, they say seek discomfort. Hmm. So like the, the whole idea of all of the different things that they do is like to actually make themselves uncomfortable whether it's being in doing freezing water training or going up to a 
a girl on the street and asking them to fly to Rome for a day or whatever it is. It's like, just like seeking discomfort and trying to get comfortable in discomfort. Mm. And I always think of that with the nine kind of like that. Oh, like it could be self-preservational things that they're triggering. I, I this is, this is slightly dangerous, uh, or it could be, um, social, uh, or it could be like asking someone, else. it's just interesting that to how that, that seek discomfort. I, I do think that a lot of times for is a growth edge for the nine. And I loved how you put that. I thought that was really beautiful. And the, the yoga image is, is really yeah. good mm-hmm. as well. I love that. Mm-hmm. And you're using, a, you're using the sexual energy to kind of push yourself into the, yeah. self-press. like, you know, yeah. it's not my comfort zone, but here we go, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. I would go off at that as well. Just what you said about, I definitely use my sexual energy and what I'm, how I'm trying to present to the world in order to get to the gym. I hadn't been to the gym since I was, I don't know if I had actually ever been to the gym (laughs) (laughs) until the start of last year and then COVID hit. And then I recently got back after my daughter's back in person school. And I noticed how, man, I'm I'm considerably less compulsive when I'm consistently at the gym. Mm. I'm not trying to find embodiment elsewhere when I am really finding it at the gym. Mm right? Mm-hmm. When I'm really getting into my physicality, into my yeah. soma. Yeah. I, I've really found the, the balance. There's some, a lot of balance there, but it's, it's, it is largely using, using the, the sexual instinct to get me there. And then I just, then I'm good. And then I take more showers. And that's great. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Your wife likes you better. That way. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> That's so good. And, and the, the, the practice of being embodied, I love that, what you just said about that. Like that helps you to feel more embodied when you're bringing a little bit more of the self-preservation. I think, Donna, you had mentioned that, like, yes, the self-preservation and the body, they do dovetail, they do connect. There is something there. So that helps the nine become embodied a little bit more. I just want to say thank you uh, to each of you for having opened up as much as you have and uh, for sharing and your wisdom, your even places where you're still kind of growing and developing and struggling. All of it is so welcomed. All of it is part of the path, part of the journey. And so a huge thanks to you uh, for being on this podcast uh, with us. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Good to be with you all. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yes, I agree with Joel. It's a huge gift to other people to hear more about, um, even help them understand themselves if they have the sexual instinct or come from a nine perspective. And um, those who are interacting with people who are, are like you on a daily basis and you give more empathy when we hear each other's stories and we know that. So thank you so much. It's amazing to see you and we will see you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. You can find out more about us at www.theartofgrowth.org. That's the place to learn more about our comprehensive training and coaching programs for organizations around team health. And you can also reach out to us there about individual coaching as well. And there are many tools on the Art of Growth website to help you on your journey. We'd also encourage you to check out the main Art of Growth podcast. Grace and growth, my friends.